Welcome to the Investment Academy, an initiative from the Investment Committee at Investec Wealth and Investment. I'm Max Richardson, and this week, Vaughan Tan, Assistant Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at University College London School of Management, joins me for a conversation about the uncertainty mindset, how we should distinguish uncertainty from risk, and the opportunity that the pandemic has presented us with to build resilience through productive discomfort. Vaughan is a PhD from Harvard. He spent time as an infantry signals logistician in the Singapore Army, worked at Google, and then briefly as a furniture maker before joining UCL. He is also author of The Uncertainty Mindset, Innovation Insights from the Frontiers of Food. Some of our conversation will be set in the context of the restaurant industry and sourdough bread making, which I suspect some of our listeners will have turned to during lockdown. Can baking a loaf of bread help to improve our overall resilience and understanding of risk versus uncertainty? This conversation should be particularly useful for everyone who manages risk and uncertainty on a daily basis, and particularly for portfolio managers and business owners. Hi, Vaughan. Greetings, Max. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very well. Still, still working from home, um, which, is, which is great, actually, um, but looking forward to going back to the office. Super excited about today's conversation. Uh, we're going to cover some important topics made even more pertinent by the pandemic. The key today is to challenge some of the widely accepted and practiced thinking around risk and to explore some useful strategies to manage uncertainty in a better way. I really want to drill down uh, on the food industry and sustainability too. But to begin, um, could you describe the difference between risk and uncertainty and why an uncertainty mindset is so important for innovation? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, the main difference between risk and uncertainty is that in a situation of risk, you may not know exactly what's going to happen in the future, but you know all the possible outcomes and you know how likely each one of them will be. This is the only way you can sort of figure out how to act so that you maximize expected outcomes, right? Uh, now, uncertainty is a, is a different kettle of fish, as they say. You probably don't know all the possible outcomes. Of the outcomes that you do know about, you may not know their likelihoods. And I think the most important thing is you may not even be fully aware of which ones of the outcomes that you do know about you actually truly prefer. So a lot of the things that we think about in terms of how we make decisions in a risky scenario don't really apply in an uncertain like scenario. And so the, I think that's the reason why it's important to distinguish between the two of them. Because if you are facing an uncertain scenario, you shouldn't be acting as if it were risky and making decisions in that way. So, I mean, I, I try and put this in the context of different scenarios. So we can think about certain games, very basic games as being risky yeah. or involving risk. Um, throwing a die, yeah. uh, playing chess, playing poker maybe, because there are, a, there are only a certain number of outcomes and you can, um, if you're any good at it, quite easily kind of probability weight those outcomes given what's yes. going on. Yeah. Whereas the, the real world doesn't work like that. There are infinite numbers of potential outcomes because there are so many forces at play. And perhaps, I mean, actually, it's an interesting sort of intro to the concept of, complex adaptive systems maybe and how those are systems that really we should be thinking about uncertainty rather than risk 
Yeah, I, I think absolutely. The one way to think about scenarios where a risk mindset is appropriate are exactly, as you say, these very simple games. I'm not even sure I would think about chess or Go necessarily as being simple enough to be like that. Uh, but certainly if you were tossing a dice, I, I think something like throwing a die and betting on its outcome, if you know that the die is fair, you know, it's like every side is equally likely to come up, uh, you can make a bet about the outcome of that with some degree of confidence. Uh, now, if you're thinking about a complex adaptive system, which are all really important systems, like any society, any kind of financial market uh, that has any kind of complexity in it at all, I think where it begins to get interesting and also really problematic is if we assume that we can predict like the state of that complex adaptive system in the future. So if you're thinking about it from the perspective, I guess, of an investment professional, uh, and you're trying to imagine how to place a particular portfolio so that you maximize outcomes. I, I think that the existing way of thinking about it, which is probably driven by the risk mindset, uh, may not be appropriate, right? And, and we've seen in the last 15 years, uh, two instances of situations which turned out to very clearly be uncertain rather than just risky. So the first one, uh, which we all know about, is the 2008 you know, global financial crisis, such as it was, uh, where people thought that they understood the risk represented by these complex derivatives that were, in many cases, anchored on real estate. Uh, as it turned out, the complexity of all the various ways they were derived from each other made it impossible to predict how they would unwind. And uh, the outcome of that was, you know, a very, very complex situation that unfolded over the course of about two years, which we're still dealing with today. And the second one, of course, we're right in the middle of right now, uh, where if you started out maybe in January this year thinking about uh, what the future would hold for the next six or eight months, you would not have predicted what happened, what has happened and what we're facing today. And even three months ago, you know, there, there's still so much in this very complex situation. We, we don't understand the interrelationships between politics, uh, politics, public health, medical science, and the virus. And there are many outcomes on which we depend that remain uncertain in nature and certainly uncertain in probability, right? Like a lot of us are depending, I think, in how we think uh, about the future on the existence of a vaccine that is effective and can be distributed. But if we are very realistic, we don't know when it will arrive. We don't know how effective it will be. We don't know what dosage will have to be administered. And we don't know when it will be available in large enough quantity to be distributed to everyone who needs it. And we don't know when it will be possible to do that administratively. So I, I think you know, that, that distinction between a simple system, which is understandable in all of its states, and one which is complex, and adaptive, for sure, uh, is a massive one. It's a qualitative difference. They're not the same animal at all. And how people think about those systems in the context of taking action inside them absolutely has to be, you have to think about them in different ways. So one of the um, strategies that, that you talk about a lot to perhaps foster this uncertainty mindset is productive discomfort. Yeah. Um, so... Perhaps we can talk about what productive discomfort is and why 
why it's so important to try things that make you feel at least cognitively uncomfortable. Right. Um, and how do we become good or comfortable about being cognitively uncomfortable? Uh, I, it's, a, it's a great question. So I, I will preface all this by saying that I'm still thinking about this. Uh, it's not clear entirely to me all the different facets of it. But I think one of the reasons why it's one of the reasons that seems at the moment clear enough about why we should be more productively uncomfortable or more comfortable with being cognitively uncomfortable is because when we're facing situations which are uncertain, uh, it, it, they are very, very uncomfortable situations to be in. And if what we do is kind of grasp after comfort and certainty, we are much more likely to misinterpret the situation as being risky and therefore to act in the incorrect way. And again, unfortunately, coronavirus and governmental as well as private responses to it seem to have gone in that direction, right? Like we've systematically and repeatedly misinterpreted a situation which is actually truly uncertain as being something which is controllable, which is risk manageable. And the results are plain for all to see, like the countries that sort of said, okay, we don't understand what's going on. It looks like it could be really bad. Let's assume that we don't know and let's be let's you know, if you want to use a, a kind of a modern term, let, let's own that uncertainty and really lean into it. Uh, those countries took very, very aggressive action up front. And they're in, nearly without exception. Actually, I think possibly even without exception, the countries that seem to have overreacted at the very beginning, they're in much better positions now than the countries that said, oh, let, let's kind of risk manage this. Let's optimize for it uh, and kind of delay taking action until it's really clear that action needs to be taken. Uh, those countries, the UK is one of them, the US is definitely one of them, Brazil is one of them. All of those countries are now facing a situation where it became clear after the fact that trying to risk manage and optimize in a situation which is truly uncertain is a bad idea, right? And obviously the three countries are facing slightly different scenarios because some countries have continued to act in this way, whereas other countries have kind of wised up later in the game than they should have, but they've wised, they've wised up nonetheless. I suppose, I mean, two examples of countries that appear to um, have acted with an uncertainty mindset, perhaps, were New Zealand and Germany. Yes. Do, do you think there's a correlation um, between those, between that, those countries that appear to have managed this a bit better, yeah. a lot better, and a reliance or an, a sort of inbuilt resilience, perhaps, amongst the population where in those countries, New Zealand, Germany, perhaps, they weren't just relying on the government to tell them what to do, that, that there was perhaps almost culturally a uh, responsibility that they took upon themselves to, to manage this in a better way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really hard to say like what is causing successful outcomes at the national level, because it's also almost certainly true, we don't know, but it's almost certainly true that in the two countries that you mentioned, uh, the governments have also taken much wiser decisions, right? They, they decided to act much earlier. When they decided to act earlier, they also acted more definitively, they communicated more clearly, and they acted with more intensity more quickly. But it does seem to be the case that where individuals take responsibility for themselves more, instead of relying on other people to take responsibility for them, outcomes are better. And, and I, I just want to clarify also that I'm not saying that taking responsibility for yourself is equivalent to a kind of a libertarian view on what responsibility means, right? It's not about being free to do whatever you want. 
I think taking responsibility for yourself in this situation, especially in a public health situation with a highly contagious disease or maybe a, a very contagious disease, is not only about taking care of yourself, but thinking about the externalities that your actions may have on other people and acting appropriately. And so, I mean, I, without naming names, we know countries where this is not happening and we know de demographics in those countries where this is certainly not happening because of this idea that freedom to act as an individual wants to act, regardless of how that individual interacts with the context in which he or she lives, that's happening a lot and it's not working very well, shall we say. So, so I, I want to extend this, this conversation about, um, certainly about productive discomfort into innovation. Yeah. Um, and to, to focus on innovation for a while. Um, and perhaps before we relate productive discomfort to innovation, you could describe your research project uh, and particularly why you use fine dining and the restaurant space as a lab, if you like, to study innovation. Absolutely. So the answer I normally give people about why I look at restaurants is because the cycle times are very short. If you're trying to understand how people come up with new things, uh, you could go look at the traditional setting as things like semiconductor, you know, R&D and stuff. Uh, and then you'd be in a situation where an innovation cycle is multiple years long, right? Like even to get something made as a prototype, if you're talking about a semiconductor, might be 18 months. Uh, whereas in food, if you're trying to develop a new dish or develop a new mode of service, you could have something go from an idea to a finished prototype in a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks. So the cycle time is faster, which means you can see more instances of it and you can see patterns across instances of product development more easily. That's the excuse. Uh, it's not an excuse. It's, it's true. The real reason is it's more fun. Like I <laughs> used to work in tech. I, I enjoy it. But it's enjoyable to work on things that you enjoy, right? So that, that's the other reason and probably the more material one. Um, and I think even though it may seem that looking at restaurants uh, is very particular and it's not transferable to people who do things in, say, software or who make stuff, uh, what I found, because I, I've, worked in, I've worked in a large bureaucratic organization, the Army, I've worked in a technology company, in fact, the mechanisms and the dynamics at work are very similar, just that the things being made are very different. So I, I see the same kinds of problems and, the, and potentially analogous solutions happening in restaurants that I would have seen in a company like Google trying to make you know, a new service to distribute to billions of people as you would in a restaurant where they're trying to make a dish that they would serve to maybe a thousand people over the course of the season. Uh, so I, I think there are there are definitely transferabilities uh, between the setting of restaurants and other settings, which I think other people may think are more important or which they may care more about. Yeah, I, there, there are, it seems to me that there are different levels of that you can engage in productive discomfort. So one can engage it at the the individual level, yeah. sort of mic micro practices, for example, which actually, if you scaled them up across an organisation, could be enormously powerful. But also at the macro level, organisations might also engage in it as well. Do you? I mean, do you have any examples from your time working with those um, kitchens, those chefs, of of what they were able to do, perhaps at both levels, sort of individually and maybe at the sort of you know the organisational level? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the they actually did a lot of things to make themselves uncomfortable along the way, and 
the reasons why are, I think that there are many reasons why they did it. One of them is just, this is just how things work in this setting. But one thing that I thought was quite interesting, and we've talked about this before, is this idea that there is a kind of a truism or a convention in management that you should try and do things that your that your organization is good at doing so that you are less likely to fail. And what that does is over time, it makes the organization as well as the people in the organization less good at failing. Now, from the perspective of someone who's trying to study innovation or perhaps on the other side of the screen, I guess, uh, for people who are trying to be innovative, the, the one thing which we always know is true about coming up with something new is that you often will fail along the way. Like there is no way to get around that problem. So if you've created an organization and people in the organization that are just not very good at failing, the default conclusion that you come to is that your organization is probably not going to be good at innovating either. So in these restaurants, I think one of the most interesting things I saw was uh, at every single one of them, they systematically did this thing, which is they would commit to an outcome which they didn't know how to deliver yet. And they would do so in all these ways that were very counterintuitive. They would commit to it publicly. They would commit to it irrevocably. And then they would invest a lot in making sure that they were, in a sense, tied to the mast, right? Uh, they would, for instance, commit to opening the restaurant in nine months with a completely new menu and then start selling tickets for that so that people would begin to book flights from around the world to fly in on a certain day, by which time they would have to have something done. And I think what that does is, in a way, you know the, the metaphor, that, well, it's not a metaphor, it's, a, it's, a, it's the story, I guess, of Odysseus who's trying to sail by the island of the sirens. He wants to hear the siren song, but he knows that if you hear the siren song, you tend to row into the island and then you, you, know, you, you shipwreck and then you die. So what he does is he, he creates a scenario in which he is able to listen to the siren song while still being able to sort of escape their irresistible draw by setting up, I guess, a system, right? What he does is he has himself tied to the mast. He gives his crew instructions to row by the island and not to deviate from the course that he's set. And then he stops up their ears with wax so that they cannot hear the siren song. But he, tied to the mast, his ears are not stopped up. He gets to hear it while he is kind of pulled irresistibly by, by his crew. I think there's something very similar to that in what these kitchens and these innovative restaurants are doing. They're basically forcing themselves to do something which they know if they were not forced to do, they would simply not do. Like, it is so easy to say, let's just delay it. Let's delay the launch another month, another month, another month. Or let's not do this launch at all. Let's do something else. If you are not bound to delivering on a promise and not just bound to it, but you're committed to the point where you will have massive reputational loss if you don't deliver. So it's things like that. I think at the organizational level, uh, the leaders of these restaurants were able to do that. They were able to commit to something which might have been a massive failure and they were able to make their entire organization commit to it. But I think what happens over time, like over repeated instances of doing something like that, is that their teams, the people who work in their, in their organizations also become good at this, right? Like the, the one thing which I noticed about every one of these teams was they were frequently very stressed out, but they were not debilitated by the stress. And they were learning over multiple instances of doing things that were beyond their capacity. They were learning how to deal with that stress better. And every time they took on a new project that was supposedly impossible, 
that new project was much more impossible than the previous one, which was in turn much more impossible than the one before. So they were kind of doing this. They were stepping up. And I, I know I've used this metaphor with you before and with uh, Lucrezia. It, it's a little bit like what happens when you uh, do any kind of resistance training. You, you don't start instantly with something which is far beyond your capacity. You start with something which is slightly beyond your capacity. And then as you build up your capacity, you keep pushing further and further along. But the only way you ever build capacity is by doing something which exceeds it. And if you keep on doing that, you are constantly pushing up your ability to do something, which in this case is to fail and therefore be able to do something which is new. So I think there is something to be said about the connection between being able to fail, which is uncomfortable, and being able to innovate. Like you have to be able to be uncomfortable in your inability to do something in order to develop the ability to do something which you cannot yet do. To me, it seems fairly incontrovertible. So, so I want to come back to that because I think that as as enormous in scale as the pandemic is, yeah, um, there is potentially something even larger looming in the form of climate change that 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 is. Um, that maybe this experience has provided us with the sort of resistance training to, to learn about in the future. Maybe, maybe not. But so let's come back to that. But at the more individual level then, just in our sort of, you know, daily lives, what is the, it sounds to me like this is about sort of pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone. Yeah. Um, are there any, I mean, for example, when you were at Google, I mean, you, you, you were at Google and then you became a furniture maker. So, was that an example at a sort of personal level of, of, of trying to employ or engage with productive discomfort? I think the good story would be that I, I planned all of it to be more <laughs> and more uncomfortable along the way. Uh, I think that would be dishonest. I, I, I kind of just did things that made sense at the time. I, I think to answer your question directly, it, it does seem like we need to all – individually, and I think this is generically true, we all need to become more comfortable with being put in situations where we don't know how to act or what the right actions are. Because as it's not just going to be climate change, I, I think even in the very near term, the, the, the fallout from the pandemic in countries like the UK or the US, and actually in countries everywhere, I, it really probably doesn't matter whether or not your country is especially good or especially bad, the economies in, around the world will be affected by it in ways that we can't predict. So it does seem like we all need to be more comfortable with not knowing what the future will be and how we will have to live in that future. Um, and maybe from that perspective, what we're going through now is a good precursor, I guess, for what will happen with climate change, right? With, with the pandemic, one likely way that our lives will become more uncertain is that uh, we will not know, for instance, if and when we'll get sick or what the results of that illness will be if we get coronavirus or we, we contract it, I guess, and get COVID. Um, and we also don't know the effects on our employment, like how businesses will be affected by coronavirus and changes in demand or changes in regulation as a result of it, we don't know. And therefore some people who are employed may no longer be employed, they may be employed doing different things, or they may have to become self-employed. I, I think those are going to be very similar problems that uh, th th are going to be problems that are very similar to what happens over a much longer time horizon with climate change. With climate change, what's going to happen is the pattern of where people can live and what they can do where they live and work will change. You know, 
uh, low-lying areas that are coastal will probably become less and less easily habitable. And what that means for us is most of our large uh, and wealthy cities are very, very close to the ocean, right? Or at least they're affected by changes in sea level. It, London is one of them. You know, the only reason why most of Southeast London is not underwater is because there is a big Thames barrier, uh, which was built for, I think it's something like a 500-year or 1,000-year flood. But we come very close to it with increasing frequency. Uh, and, you know, you, you, all you have to do is look at cities like that. Like New York is another one. LA is one. San Francisco is one. Uh, there, we will have to think about where businesses will relocate how infrastructure will have to relocate, how individuals will have to relocate. And it's, we haven't even begun to think about that stuff seriously, right? Like, I, I know there, there are going to be people who are planning this stuff, but the person on the street is not really thinking about what will happen to, for instance, long-term investments in real estate, high-value real estate, in the event that the locations where that high-value real estate is, is located become, I don't know, inundated by water, which could happen in, I don't know, 40, 50 years, maybe less. Um, yeah, so I, I think we need to be we need to be at least thinking about how we would react in a situation like that, and many of us are not thinking about that yet. No, that's true. That's true, and it has huge implications for everybody, not least for the insurance industry as well. Who I'm, I'm I suspect have operated with a very much a risk mindset in the past rather than uh, an uncertainty mindset, but maybe that's changing. Um, one of the areas that I wanted to, to, to talk about was this concept of quality, cool. which, which I know that you think and talk about uh, quite a lot. And one of the issues that people and certainly some organizations have is that they might be very good at what they do, but they find it hard to articulate how they do it so well or what, it, what makes them so good at it. Um, they have some sort of tacit knowledge, I suspect, how can they better understand that and, and maybe even bottle it up to reproduce, yeah. to be more innovative in the future, for example? I, I think this is a fantastic question, which doesn't get answered enough or asked enough. So, that, that, I mean, there, there's two parts of that question, right? So one of them is, uh, is quality necessarily something which you cannot really talk about? Is it always tacit? Uh, I think there, that's a whole conversation on its own. And then the second part is, if there is tacit knowledge in an organization, like know-how that allows the organization and its members to do something which other organizations can't do, then how do they manage it so that people inside the organization can learn it, but presumably people outside the organization don't learn it so that you've got that competitive advantage uh, persisting? I think the first question is, is especially interesting. Uh, almost every organization I know that does something good does something which is kind of unique to that organization, right? So, you know, if you're manufacturing products, that, I mean, okay, so then there's lots of companies that manufacture products that are very fungible from, from each other. Like all commodities companies kind of do that. But the moment you get into any kind of value add, you're in a situation where what you make is distinct from what somebody else makes in the same market. So if you're making potato crisps, uh, and you want to charge a premium, you have to charge a premium because people want your thing and not somebody else's crisps. And so yours have to taste better in some way or be addressed to a specific market in some way. So that ability, that know-how to develop something new, which is unique and therefore enables charging a price premium, I think generally applies to 
businesses that are trying to do something where a price premium can be charged. And I, I don't know if this is where you were going, but I would imagine that investment management is also one of those things because one would assume that not every investment management company does things the same way, manages money the same way. And therefore, not every investment management company uh, achieves the same kinds of results as every other investment company. So if you've got a company that is doing things especially well, what you want to do, I guess, is you want to figure out how people who know how to do that thing in the company can train other people who know it less so that they can do it equally well. And especially this is true for people who are new, right? So you bring someone in who is potentially good and they may have good skills at, you know, they, they may be quantitatively very good, but what maybe you're talking about and I'm inferring is you bring in someone with a very good baseline, but you want them to also understand how, for instance, Investec does things uniquely compared to, I don't know, another investment management firm. So if that's what you mean by bottling it up and reproducing it, I think I, I have some thoughts about that. But is that what you mean? Um, yes. But while you were talking, it is actually. And while you were talking, it struck me that actually one of the there are a number of things to disaggregate here. And perhaps the first thing to disaggregate, particularly in investing, is luck and skill. So how much luck contributes to the outcome that is achieved? Yeah. And uh, Michael Mobison writes and talks about this luck skill continuum where there are activities that are very much um, determined by, by luck with some skill. Yeah. And there are some that over, are, are overwhelmingly determined by skill. Yes. Uh, so, so casino would be very much at the luck end of the spectrum. Chess, for example, would be at the skill end of the spectrum um and and i think being honest um about anyone's activities whether it's investment management or or not or anyone's success about to what degree luck has played a role or consistently plays a role what proportion is it is 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 important so that's that's a sort of a, a an interesting opening but then once you've established that there is something to bottle up some tacit knowledge some skill um that that then is the next uh, challenge, I guess, is to, to figure out what that exactly is and how to replicate it. Because one of the other important points, which we've talked about before, is, and not many people talk about this at all, yeah. is that it's often actually quite easy to answer the question. But find, making sure you're answering the right question Correct. Is, the, is, is the real challenge and the hard part. Yeah. Um, and so the extension to my question was going to be, how do we make sure we're asking the right question, that we're devoting our time and efforts as an organization to the right causes, yeah. perhaps, or activities so that we're it's the best use of our time? Yeah. So I was just thinking about the answer. So the, I think the first, the first question that you posed, how can we be sure that we're answering the right, how, how can we be sure that we're asking the right questions? I don't think you can ever be sure about it, but what you can do is you can have systems so that you, you can create systems, which include things like work cultures or actual processes so that people inside the organization are interrogating the questions being asked, right? So groupthink is one way that you can be pretty sure that you're not going to systematically always ask the right questions. Um, 
But I, I want to go back to, to your first point. I, I was writing down some notes in there about the distinction between luck and skill. I think absolutely we should be honest about when we're lucky and when we're skillful. And a lot of the time, it's going to be the ability to use skill to reinforce luck that results in good outcomes. So people who are simply lucky, I mean, just based on what luck is, uh, it should be equally distributed in the population, right? So by itself, it's probably not that interesting. But if you are, for instance, skillful in putting yourself in positions where you're more likely to be able to capitalize on being lucky, or if you're skillful in the sense that when you are lucky, you can recognize that you've been lucky and you can act swiftly on it, I think it's, it's where the two intersect that the kind of secret sauce of tacit knowledge um, becomes most interesting. And actually, they're, they're, it's not just in investment management. It, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, with very different outcomes, obviously. It's kind of the same thing even in doing research, right? Like there's tons and tons of researchers who choose to study things that on the, like all research is, I guess, of the same conceptual value. Like all new knowledge is equally new and equally good, but there's some new knowledge that happens to be correctly positioned in time so that it becomes super important. It's especially topically relevant. So it becomes really relevant to policymakers and people who make money. Uh, and I think there's always been an open question around how you train someone so that they can recognize the flavor of a good question, not just good from a research perspective, but also good from a sort of a broader, more contextual perspective. So I, I, to me, the question that you're posing about a, a secret sauce that you can bottle in an organization is similar to, for instance, if you are in a research group in a university how the senior PI, the, the principal investigator in that research group, teaches someone who joins that group how to ask questions so that they're more likely to ask the right question and come up with an interesting answer. So with that said, I think one of the things that is probably true about this particular kind of tacit knowledge is if you are exposed to a lot of it, you are more likely to recognize it when you see it than if you have had no exposure to it at all. So it's probably true, and, and maybe you see this in your work setting, maybe you don't. It's probably true that if you've been systematically exposed to good deals, good investment prospects, good thinking behind those prospects and seeing the outcomes of that over time, uh, you become better at identifying good deals, right? And, and so one thing that this suggests is having some kind of verticalized, domain expertise by focusing on one area, broad or narrow, it doesn't matter. Uh, that probably is one way that you can make it more likely that a special sauce develops. Uh, another thing which is probably true is if you have people who are comfortable with asking questions about the decision-making process that leads to success, you're more likely to be forcing the people who make successful decisions to articulate how they see what things are going on. And I, I'm going to draw an analogy here to bread making, which I know you love, um, because I think <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's some similarities here. So if, if what you do is you never make bread and you simply say, I'm going to make bread for one day, chances are really, really high, actually, that uh, the bread that you make will turn out to be bad. And, and you may have found this as well. I have definitely found this to be the case. 
the more you make bread, the more you learn things about the process that you may not even know that you are learning because you know how to do it, but you may not be able to say it. And the more you make bread with people who are willing to ask questions about the process, the more you learn about the process that you are implementing, right? So uh, last weekend, I was at a restaurant in, Bel in yeah, it's in Belgium, uh, learning how to make pizza. And because I do the things that I do, I am perfectly willing to look really stupid and ask questions that a normal person would not be willing to ask. And as a result, I think, uh, I actually had a conversation with the guy that I was working with uh, who was teaching me. Uh, he said, you ask all these stupid questions that I would, never, I would never have asked when I was in your position, just learning for the first time. But from my perspective, as the question asker, if I hadn't asked those questions, I would have had to spend much, much more time watching him to learn the same thing that he was then forced to articulate, right? Or forced to demonstrate again. And I think there's a benefit on both sides to this. One of them is from the learner's perspective. For me, I learn more things more quickly and I learn them in a different way that's more detailed. But for the person who is developing the skill set, the special sauce, I think what it's also doing is it's forcing them to pay attention to something which they know how to do, which they don't know how to say yet. And when you pay attention to something, you learn about it, right? Uh, it, I think this, this has something to do with learning how to articulate what you already know, but you cannot say yet. And if investment management is anything like a lot of the other things that we do, like learning how to do research, learning how to make bread, learning how to manufacture, I don't know, like a product, like I used to make furniture, learning how to make a chair. A lot of the things that we learn how to do, if we're not forced to teach someone else how to do it or talk to someone else or answer questions about what we're doing from someone else, uh, we don't examine what we're doing. We don't learn very much about it other than the fact that we know how to do it. So I, I think the evolution of, this, of the special sauce is helped a lot by being in a social context where there is a cultural norm of being able to ask stupid questions that force people who are developing the special sauce to articulate what it is. Okay, so I've said a lot of stuff. I, I think we can also talk about how you transfer the bottled secret sauce to other people and replicate it. Um, but maybe you had some thoughts about what I just said. I was thinking about when you were speaking about, um, certainly about bread, and bread was something I was gonna come on to as well, because we do talk about it a lot, and, and I've certainly still got a lot to learn. But in particular, there was one concept that was in my head, which was that of nonlinearity. Ah, yeah, right. Which you've experienced in bread, for sure. Which I've experienced in bread, definitely. Uh, it, it's a, an in, enormously important concept to understand if you manage money. Yes. And or pandemics. Indeed. Indeed. And, and actually, both were clearly linked um, totally. to, 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 to a great degree. Yeah. The pandemic is an example of positive feedback loops working against you if you're trying to make money. Um, and there are other, other factors, positive feedback loops, that are enormously helpful if you're trying to make money. And both, again, are uh, things that you experience when you're making bread as well. So one of the questions I was going to ask, actually, was what is it about bread making that helps us to build resilience to right. be able to deal with what the real, the uncertainty that the real world throws up. Uh, 
another excellent question and one that I've been thinking about. I don't have the I don't have a full answer yet, nor am I sure about my answer. But uh, here are some initial thoughts. I think one thing, and, and I'm really glad you brought up the question of nonlinearity because the response profile of a system in reaction to your actions on the system are obviously really important to understand if you're trying to make the system behave in ways that you care about and want to affect, right? So if you're trying to make money or if you're trying to control a virus or if you're trying to make a loaf of bread or make a chair, um, I think what you need to understand is you need to understand the affordances of the system. Like if I do X, how does it respond so that I can understand what X to do? And one challenge for complex systems is that there are going to be whole zones of actions that you take, right? Levels of an action that you take, if you will, that result in no behavior that is observable. And then all of a sudden there is that, you know, either a nonlinearity or worse, like a particular kind of nonlinearity, which is a discontinuity where you do a lot of things and nothing happens. And then you do a little bit more and all of a sudden the entire system flips over. Like the big concern actually with climate change is that we are, in this situation, we do a lot of stuff. There are all these negative feedback loops that cause the system to not respond and so apparently be very robust and resilient to our actions. But let's say we go a little bit over some temperature threshold that affects sea level temperature and then we flip the North Atlantic circulation. So I think nonlinearities are one of the key things that we need to understand when we're trying to affect systems that are uncertain in particular ways. And the more uncertain the system, the more complex the system, for instance, the more we need to understand, I guess, the extent to which things are sensitive and where in the extent they're not sensitive. So from that perspective, why is bread useful? I think bread is useful for two main reasons. One of them is it's really unthreatening. It's very, very inexpensive. And so it's a very good way to learn that there are even fairly simple systems like bread that can be beyond our ability to control in a risk way, right? Like, so we may say, I want a loaf that looks like this with this hydration and I want to bake it in this amount of time and have it turn out like that. And that's a goal that you can work towards, but it's obviously, I mean, now that we've both made bread, I can say to you, uh, if you said that to yourself on the first day you made a loaf of sourdough bread with a weird flour, do you think you would have been able to make it? Probably not, right? <laughs> I would not have been able to. <laughs> but I, I think one of the challenges with learning how to think in this way and actually act in this way is that it can be really, really worrying and very terrifying to people who are used to being in control. And the more senior and more important you get, the more you're used to being in control. I think it'd be really, really worrying and terrifying for people to believe and be told that actually they're not in control. So from that perspective, I think bread is useful because it's so cheap. It's so unthreatening that you can begin to learn that there are systems that are, you know, much smaller than we are that still defeat our ability to control them in the way that we think we should be able to control them. And once you learn how to do that, like once you learn how to make that mental transition away from thinking that systems should be controllable to the mindset that says systems need to be understood as things that can be understood to some extent. And only after that can we learn how to interact with them in ways that push them, not deterministically, but in the direction that we want them to go. Then we can start to think about more complex systems like the climate or a country in relation to a pandemic or smaller, a company in relation to a particular set of goals or a team 
inside that company in relation to a particular set of goals as being something which is also not necessarily directly and deterministically controllable the way we think something like bread should be, right? So that's one reason. I think the other reason is bread has a short enough time cycle that we can learn, I guess, how long it takes to control something or not control, how long it takes to learn how to understand as uncertain, something that seems really trivial. Because what that does is it shows that, to me anyway, if it takes you weeks to learn how to make bread, should we be expecting people to learn how to manage teams or companies in weeks? No. Or months? Probably not. Or years? Maybe then. And I, I think what it does is it just rebaselines us a little bit to understand that maybe we need to, I, I, I don't know, the, the word humble springs to mind, which I hate that word, but it's true. The more complex the system is, the more humble we need to be in terms of our ability to control it and how long it takes for us to learn how to control it. I think bread does that very well as well. I'm still not a good bread baker, but I, I can maybe do pizza now a little bit more. Well, I'm certainly not a good bread maker or a pizza maker. I've tried both, but um, I'm sure as time passes, I'll get there. The 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 concepts and what you would describe there, I think that, that is important, is this concept of tipping points. Yeah. And so we see them in climate, definitely in climate change. We see them in bread making as well. You can, particularly if it's hot, you can reach tipping points far quicker than uh, than you otherwise would do. And that's a factor that you have to kind of take into account because all of a sudden you could have basically completely over... Um, overproved or overfermented your your dough. So these are these are these are problems. But in an organisational setting, particularly at the moment, we see tipping points in technology cycles. Yeah, and not just in the way that technology is adopted, but in the way that technology is 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 dropped as well. So disruptions. And so those I think are really important for that concept and trying to predict where those tipping points might be. Uh, if you're either working for an organization that might benefit from a certain stage of the technology cycle, but certainly if you're in an organization or an industry that's being disrupted yep. is, is very important and very powerful. Um, yep. I, I wanted to perhaps finish with a, a, a question and a conversation about, about food again. Uh, sure. Because I think that we, we've, we've touched on, on on bread, and we touched on your your work with uh, you know, the, the the best kitchen in the world. But I also wanted to talk about just how hard it is to really control and understand what we eat, what we put into our bodies. What sort of things should we be cognizant of if we want to pursue a high quality diet, and how can we tie that perhaps to sustainability? So maybe you could talk a bit about regenerative agriculture yeah, uh, and also Lammas Fair as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, all, all topics which I, I love to talk about. So I guess, so there are three questions, right? Basically, if we unpack them, one of them is how do we think about what is good in food? And then the second one related to that is how do we find it? And then the third one is about these specific things like regenerative agriculture, and Lanisfer, which I think is really interesting. Um, so the first one, what is good in food? I think we've thought a long time about, we've, we've thought for a long time that food is good if it tastes good. And then as you sort of think more about it, uh, I think there's three sets of principles that, that need to 
be intersected with each other, right? One of them is you shouldn't eat things that are, I guess, a chore to eat. Like life is too short to eat food that doesn't taste good. So the first filter is, does it taste good? And then there's lots and lots of things that taste great. The filter after that that you apply is, is it good for you? And, and we, at this point, we know quite a bit about what things are good for us. And usually what happens is you just have to look at what we've been eating for a long time. And you know kind of what's good for you. Like, don't process it as much. Don't eat too much salt. Don't eat too much sugar. And like fewer things that are not things we've eaten for hundreds of thousands of years, right? So any food coloring, all preservatives, all these things that are new, like it's not necessarily true that all of them are bad. It's just that we don't have hundreds of years of evidence that they're not bad. And so for me, uh, that's a second filter. So does it taste good? And then I guess an easy heuristic is, have we eaten it? for hundreds of years or thousands of years? If yes, probably it's okay. Then the third filter after that is, is it made in a way that you can believe is socially responsible and environmentally sustainable? And a lot of that will simply be a lot of the same things that happen in relation to the second filter. Like if we've been growing things for hundreds of years in ways that allow us to keep growing that same thing indefinitely, which is what a lot of old farming techniques used to do before we had petrochemical farming, chemical farming, uh, it's probably okay, right? So those three filters to me, and they're successive. First, does it taste good? The second is, is it probably good for you? And the filter for that is essentially, have we eaten for a long time? And the third one is, is it probably good for the planet? I think they're actually really easy to, to do if you take the time, right? You taste it, does it taste good or not? If it tastes good, eat it. If it does taste good, has it been like that for a really long time? If yes, you eat it. If not, you don't, or you eat less of it, like crisps. I love bad crisps, but we know that they're relatively new, so we just don't eat very many of them. And then how is it made? And I think it's actually surprisingly easy if you use those three filters to think about how to put delicious, good-for-you food that's also on balance, probably not so bad for the planet, into your body. So that's, that's fairly... Uh, I guess, straightforward. And then the more you want to go into the third filter, uh, the more complex it gets, right? So you, you asked uh, about regenerative farming. I, I think it's a really interesting question because there is a lot of, there are, there, are many there are many political questions as well as economic interests around farming. It is big business after all. And a lot of those interests are saying things like we can't feed the entire planet's population if we don't farm industrially, uh, or it's not possible to farm and produce food at a low enough price to be democratic if we don't use chemistry. And I think, for me at least, the jury is definitely out on that. And certainly for the people who are listening to this podcast, uh, if you can afford to spend 20% more on your food, you can easily choose to buy food that is produced carefully. And one of the ways that you can choose to produce food is you can choose to produce food in a way that allows you to produce it indefinitely rather than only for a finite period of time. And I think this is where it comes, this is where regenerative agriculture kind of shows up. Regenerative agriculture, I, I guess many people define it in lots and lots of different ways. I'm not saying my way is correct, but the way I think of it is if you are growing some crop on a piece of land, your form of agriculture is regenerative if you are increasing the ability of that piece of land to grow that crop. And what that means is if you're increasing the ability to grow that crop, you can grow indefinitely. And also 
if you are growing that crop in a way, and this is now economic, so that the person or the organization that is growing that crop can grow that crop indefinitely as well. They're not subsidizing it or being subsidized to do it. And so if you combine the two of those, can you grow it in a kind of a physical plant way so that you can grow it indefinitely? You're not adding a lot of chemistry to it that you will need to keep adding. You're not depleting it so that you will eventually have to stop growing it. And if you're able to grow it so that the person or the business that's growing it makes enough money that they can do it indefinitely, you're growing in a regenerative way. Usually what these filters mean in terms of agriculture is that you're not growing with chemistry. You're not adding nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus to the soil. And you're growing in a way that is small scale enough that the people who are growing it are involved in the actual growing and you're selling at a price that's high enough that they're making enough money from it that they can continue to grow it. So it's not easy to find people like that who are growing like that, but they do exist. It takes a little bit of extra effort to find those people and you should be paying them more because they're trying to grow things in a way that is net beneficial, right? Uh, if I get on a soapbox for a moment, if you can afford it and you have the time, you should definitely do it. If you can afford it, you should definitely pay extra for it. And even if you think you don't have the time to do it, it's definitely worth doing it for your own benefit, let alone for everyone else's benefit. So Lammas Fair uh, is related to this idea because, you know, we, we grow, we eat mostly carbohydrates as a, as a human race, like we eat mostly carbohydrates. And then we also eat proteins and, and other things on top of that. And if you think about carbohydrates, most of the carbohydrates are cereals. Uh, they're grasses of some sort, like rice or wheat or oats and barley. And because we grow so many of them, how we grow cereals has a massive impact on climate change, the way we, the way like soil gets treated, because we grow so much of it on so much surface. And so uh, Lamisphere, I mean, the, the name keeps on changing. So it's a project by a guy called John Letts, uh, whose name should be familiar for other reasons. Uh, but he's been working on a way of thinking about growing grain that is slightly different from how it is generally done today. It returns to ways of growing grain that are very, very old, like pre-18th, 17th century. Uh, and what they're basically doing is they're not growing monocultures of one single variety of a grain, in, in his case, mostly wheat. Uh, he is focusing on growing very, very diverse populations of many different kinds of wheat in the same field at the same time. Because... The theory, which appears to be borne out in practice, is that if you grow a very diverse population of wheats that are not stunted and therefore grow quite high, uh, the diversity of different genetic material in there means that that population of wheat is more robust to fungus, to disease, to insects than a monocultural population of wheat. And therefore, a diverse population of wheat like this is lower input of all the chemistry and potentially higher yielding than monocultural organic production. And if, if that seems difficult to grasp, another way to think about it is if you imagine a city with only one type of person inside it, and that person only had one kind of skill, what that would mean is everyone in that city is probably doing the same thing. They're all going to the same kinds of restaurants. They're all consuming the same kinds of products. They're all working in the same kinds of companies. Uh, that could be fine if the environment around them doesn't change very much. But if all of a sudden the economy changes so that 
the work that they do goes away. Or if all of a sudden there is a supply chain disruption and the food that they eat goes away, that entire city is basically toast. Now, on the other hand, if you have a city that's really big or not even really big, it's just big enough, but there's a huge diversity of people and every single person inside is different. They all do different things. They work at different places, they eat different stuff. They like different movies, I guess. Like everything they want to do that they consume and that they produce is different. They're much more robust to disruption. And I think that same principle, that diversity allows you to be more robust is basically what John is finding in his, uh, in his wheat. And so, you know, if what you want is you want wheat that is tasty, that's good for you, and also is grown well and has a good story behind it, you should go check out Lamas Fair. You can buy it. I mean, you can now buy it online. Um, Shipton Mill sells it and also Bakery Bits sell it and he'll have other places that sell it as well. But it, it's a way to eat a theory and see if it tastes as good as uh, we talk about it as. I think that was a brilliant description. It made me think or reinforced my view that diversity is good, whether that's in the context of wheat, whether it's in the context of a city, whether it's in the context of an organization. Um, and, and a focus on diversity in, across the board, certainly in, in decision making, is, is, is something that should lead to uh, more optimal outcomes. I mean, yeah. I, I, my... Just to take the, the example that you, or the point you were making about why we should do this and why perhaps we should adopt these things. One of the things that drew me to, to begin baking bread was that if you work in an office, if you work in the, the knowledge economy, as it were, and you're not able to craft things with your hands in the way that you know, a baker would or a, a builder might be able to, you know, how, do you, how, do you, how do you potentially do that? And it, it gave me an opportunity to, to perhaps uh, try that and to experience that, but made me view actually my, my work in a different lens as well. So that actually you can definitely apply the concepts of craftsmanship to things that you might do on a computer or in the, sort of, in, in the virtual world. It could be as simple as crafting an email. Yes. It could be in my, for me, it's about crafting a portfolio of stocks and bonds and, and, and assets. So I think it just multi-level, very interesting uh, concepts that we've talked about there today. And I'm enormously grateful to you for joining me to, to be able to do so. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, for sure. If I may say one more thing about diversity, I think diversity is often interpreted as just having people who look different around you. But what you're pointing out, which I think is much, much more important, is diversity of ways of thinking and to come back to the idea of craftsmanship, one thing that craftsmanship does for people who are in the knowledge economy is because you're forced to work with your hands with things that are stubborn, right? Materials are stubborn, like flour is stubborn, wood is stubborn. Things are obdurate is the, is the word that is often used in relation to objects. I think there is a change in how you think about things when you're forced to work with stuff that doesn't necessarily care about what you want out of it. And if we think about systems as being, in a sense, stubborn like materials are, I think we generally as knowledge workers become more humble about ability to change those things. And that's, I think, just going back through the entire conversation we've had today, I think we just need to be more okay with not knowing how things will work, with not knowing how our actions will result in particular outcomes. And craftsmanship is almost never talked about in this way 
as teaching you how to be more humble in relation to an object which may not have sentience and may not care about you, but which you need to respond to and deal with in some way. And I think that's actually a really, it's a really relevant thing as we deal with social systems that are complex and increasingly don't care about us, but which we need to deal with and we need to somehow be able to manage, like markets, like pandemics, things like that. Um, yeah, so anyway, just a final thought. Well, okay, final thought from, thought from me then, which I'll invite a response on, yeah. because I wanted to bring it in, but I haven't yet, is this concept of finger spitzen gefühl. Yeah, absolutely. Have I pronounced it right? Is that right? I mean, who knows if you pronounced it right? I don't know if I pronounced it Could you just tell us what that is and how it relates to bread making, but also how may, maybe we can relate it to market? Yeah. Um, so I think the literal translation of that is fingertip feeling. And it actually is something which anyone who gets good at anything has. Right. So it doesn't matter whether that thing is a physical action, like learning how to plane a piece of wood or learning when dough is right uh, and it has been proved correctly and needs to be baked or knowing when to make a trade or how to allocate a portfolio. Everyone who gets good at doing something has that ability to do something which someone who is not as good does not have. Right. So the original use of fingertip feeling was in relation to craftsmen, but also I, I think, I'm, I could be wrong about this, um, military strategists in the German tradition who were incredibly good were also said to have finger spits into view in relation to what they were doing on the battlefield. So how is it relevant to this? I, I think the idea that you could have an ability that you cannot really talk about, but which gives you the prospect of doing something which other people who want to do that cannot do, but can learn, I think is really powerful. So learning that some people have this ability is the first acknowledgement that is important. Then figuring out how to create a social context so that other people who don't yet have that ability can be with someone who does and learn that is also really important. And I think these are things which, and we didn't talk about this at all, but I think that these are things which can be done in organizations. You can design organizations to systematically surface people with this fingertip feeling. And then you can create ways of working that are often kind of very quotidian. They look very trivial. You can create ways of working so that other people who don't have it yet are more likely, not guaranteed, but more likely to learn as well. And like I said, it doesn't matter whether it's like making bread or investing or writing software. I think anything that you do, you can learn how to do better. And then you can also develop this ability, which is not write downable. It's not explicable, but you can learn it anyway, because people have learned it since the dawn of time. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. A great, great relation of fingertip feeling to markets there. I like it. So, um, I think we'll close there, but I just want to thank you again, Vaughan, and, and I'm sure this is just another one of the conversations that we'll have over uh, many future conversations, too. Thanks again. I look forward to it. Uh, great to chat, Max. Thanks, Vaughan. Cool. So I'm still here. I've just stopped the recording. So I'm, I'm, not sure how the, um, I'm not sure how the recording quality was, but I actually almost always just record